Hi, this is Wayne Zell, and welcome to Blueprint for Wealth, your video cast that's designed to help you realize your personal dreams of wealth and freedom. And with me today is my special guest, Kim Clark Paxtis. Welcome, Kim. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Wayne. It's uh, great to be here, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. Awesome. Kim is a managing director in the CFO advisory practice at Cone Resnick LLP in Tyson's Corner, and she works with clients all around the country, I believe. And one of her focuses is on integrating companies after they've gone through an M&A transaction, but she also focuses on strategy and organization development and operational excellence, helping CFOs on their finance transformation best practices. She serves multiple industries across five continents, and she's enabled strategy, merger and acquisition, and enterprise transformations, helping CFOs and organizations reimagine and scale their operations, create value, expand portfolios, and revitalize talent and drive growth. So it's a very exciting practice that you're in. Um, tell us a little bit about your experience in the post M&A integration world. What do you do for a living? Thanks, Wayne. Um, so what I do for a living is help organizations as they're going through the iterations on the life cycle from, you know, startup through scaling to maturity to, you know, trying not to decline and to figure out, are they going to reinvest and reinvent in themselves? Or are they going to get ready for an exit? And that can be, you know, across a variety of sizes of, of companies. And so, you know, what I find some of the most fun pieces are helping uh, CFOs and CEOs think through those transition points and, you know, what do they need to do to get ready for those? And if we're already past one and it's not going quite as well as they would like, you know, what are the strategies that they can take to, you know, mitigate the challenges that they're facing today and um, transform themselves or transition themselves either in the market or internally with their, you know, back office practices or their operational excellence um, focus to be able to, you know, survive thrive and prepare for what that, you know, future exit is going to be, you know, all organizations at some point in time, you know, either, you know, stay on for the long haul and they have a, a succession exit, they have literally a, a sales, you know, issue, they have an IPO, you know, or they decline and they die. And we hope to keep them all out of that last category, but we are, you know, are able to be, you know, helpful in the top three. So when you're dealing with a client, uh, you deal with clients of all sizes, I imagine, right? Correct. So some of the clients are small. They may not have the infrastructure that uh, the bigger companies have. How do you deal with the smaller companies that might have, you know, 15, 20, 25 million in revenue, and they really haven't built the infrastructure that some of the very big companies have? What do you, what do you add in terms of value and how do you help them um, prepare for this business succession? Yeah. No, I think that's a great question. And we spend a lot of time with companies of that size in the market, um, whether they're on the startup size or that's just kind of their sweet spot and where they are in, in their industry. And what we do um, is, you know, really, you know, get a good sense from, you know, the leadership team on, you know, what are your, you know, goals, short, long term, and, you know, what do you need um, to be able to, to do that? And so we take a look at the, with the infrastructure and the leadership team and say, do you have the capacity 
to do what you, you know, are trying to accomplish in the timeline that you're trying to do it at the cadence that you need. And so mm -hmm. we work with them to create a blueprint um, around what that is. And in many cases, you know, they're just trying to survive and make the day to day happen. And so we can come in and say, here are some things that you can do, whether it's people changes, it's systems changes, it's process changes to get more capacity in the organization so that leaders can focus on the future. Also, um, we have the capacity to, you know, bring in and help scale and, you know, add people, you know, to be able to, you know, deploy and help organizations scale faster. So we look at that from a couple of different ways and certainly some technologies that we can bring into play. Wow. So that it's a full service type operation. Yeah. You, you can bring people, you can bring technology, uh, you can bring ideas and you can help them formulate their infrastructure. Do you find that the goals of these entrepreneurs who have these massive you know, plans to exit are beyond what they're capable of doing in terms of what you're seeing when you go in and start digging behind the curtain? Some are and some aren't. I mean, you know, it depends on what uh, the entrepreneur's background has been. It depends on how uh, much control um, they are trying to exert versus how much um, capacity they're trying to build in the organization. And, mm -hmm. you know, one of the observations is the more that, you know, a leader can count on, you know, and bring on other people who are just as smart or smarter than they are to help drive the organization are going to be those that are moving faster, moving better, um, and having more structure that's going to allow them to succeed. Do you all help these entrepreneurs and these companies find the talent? We do. We do have, um, you know, we work with uh, a number of different, um, so COOs, CIOs, CFOs, um, we can definitely help at the controller level. Um, we have an outsourced group as well that we can take some of the transactional work off of off of the plate. So we can work at all of those different levels. And then frequently we will come in um, as thinking partners or, you know, program management types to help lead through um, either difficult transitions or helping with the transformation of an organization to get from, you know, point A to point B. And especially in that merger and acquisition timeline, helping think mm -hmm. about, you know, okay, we're getting ready. We want to exit. What do we need to do to make sure that we are attractive to the market? We're going to achieve the most um, value. We're going to, um, you know, meet the timeline that we're looking for. And, you know, we want to invest just enough, um, but not too much so that we're able to do, to do those things. And so we can partner and say, these are the priorities. These are the areas, you know, specifically within your finances that need to be cleaned up, depending upon who you're trying to be sold by um, and what's going to be good for your legacy for a company. And there are two different, you know, types of leaders. Some want the money in their pocket and to go on vacation for the rest of their lives, right? Let's be honest, there's a lot of that. And others really want to build a legacy of the company that they've built and they want it to be something that goes on um, you know, into another organization and lives, you know, the life of the things that they have built. And at least either that technology patents or the methodologies that they've created, you know, live on. And so helping them rationalize that thought and putting together the plan that's going to be successful on either one of those drivers. One of the questions I get from a lot of the entrepreneurs I work with is, at what point do I need a controller? At what point do I need a CFO? And, um, you know, how big does a company need to get or how complicated does it need to get before you have to bring in these financial professionals? What do you think? 
Yeah, no, and I think it depends on the industry, quite frankly, depending upon, you know, so it's it's going to vary a little bit there. But certainly, you know, as you get to, you know, 10 million to 25 at a minimum, you're going to want that controller. I mean, you may be off, you know, you may have, you know, outsourced or have, you know, a number of different, you know, transaction processing groups that are helping you with HR and finance, and you've got that outsourced, but there's a point in time where you want to create culture and you're going to need to do those things. So when you get, and, and when you get outside money, when you start getting outside money, people want you to have clean books. They want you to be able to do that and you need to have some ownership internally. And I would say when you start fundraising, when you start looking at, you know, bigger reporting, that's when you also need to start thinking about your CFO. And when you start thinking about moving, you know, from scale, you know, at scale, and certainly from scale to, you know, fast growth, that's where CFO needs to come in. What about HR? I mean, HR is a critical component. And if you start having, you know, more than 50 employees, you're subject to all of these federal requirements, you may be subject to requirements before that level. Um, in bringing in house a lot of the functions that you might otherwise outsource to PEOs or other organizations that might help you uh, run the HR function. At what point do you need an HR professional running the, the human resource component of a business? Um, really, when you want to start to have a culture and you want to make sure that that culture is um, inculcated, you know, across the organization and it's consistent. And mm -hmm. when you want a partner, right? I mean, I think if you're just doing the transactional pieces and you're trying to save money, you can do that through all of those outsource pieces and your COO, um, maybe your CFO can take on those pieces. But when you're really saying we want to build an organization that's got legs, that's going to be sustainable, it's going to have multiple challenges and we want to be building for the future. That's when the HR, a strategic HR person makes a lot of sense to be a partner, to help to think about the retention issues, the strategic talent issues, um, as you're going to go through those milestones. When two companies combined, you know, in a merger and an acquisition, um, it's it's not that hard to get to the point of closing. I mean, I've done a lot of these transactions. <laughs> the hardest part is putting them together afterwards. Tell us a little bit about your experience, maybe a war story or two in terms of um, what happens after the after the deal is closed yeah. and the money yeah. changes hands. Yeah, everybody's like, oh, what do we have to do from day one? I'm like, on day one, you got to transfer money into the bank. Really, that's it. <laughs> Yay, um, number one. <laughs> done, right? And, and we own that. Um, and maybe there's some entity things, but you know, the, the big decisions come into play You know, on you know, day one to day 30, You know, really in those first 100 days. And I think a lot of that planning needs to be done up front and people get so caught up and not in a bad way in that this is the priority and the where all the attention has to be focused, especially smaller companies um, on the deal and making sure that all the pieces of the deal, all the due diligence is done, all of those pieces are done. And sometimes there's a cadence there that's actually not allowing you to go back and really dig into the due diligence and see what's actually not there um, to ask some of those questions. And so a lot of times in the first 30 days, it's really the awareness of, oh my gosh, what did I not know? And so I think there's some horror stories there. Of we made a lot of assumptions around the data we were seeing based on our lens and how we look at the world and the maturity that we're in and the expectations. And so we were asking these questions and we got X answer or we, you know, they said, yes, we assumed it was at a level of detail or a quality or a type. 
that matched what we were doing. And so you get these disconnects where people, you know, believe that we're all the same. I think the biggest one that happens is culture. On paper, almost everybody's vision, mission, values are within a, you know, 10% variance of the same words. Those words okay. mean very, very different things to different companies. And so really okay. digging deep on, on that and how is that going to influence the, the integration. How do you put cultures together successfully? Um, it, it, it takes time. It um, takes a lot of, you know, really understanding what is the idea of the new co, right? And there are really three ideas, right, around, a, you know, a merger or an integration. You either okay. say everybody is going into what the acquirer is. We're basically just adopting you. You're coming into our family. You're going onto our systems. And you, to, on day one, you're flipping. You're getting a, you know, a new badge for your, that, that has your name on it. You get new cards, everything. And you get your signature on your computer. Everything is the new. And, you know, we want you to bring all of the goodness of what you were doing, but you're going to do it our way. That doesn't <laughs> always work because the person didn't necessarily sign up to work for that company. They went to work for, the original company. So trying right. to, you know, the change management there is important. Um, you know, another model is we're looking for the best of breed. Well, you don't normally do the best of breed in the first hundred days because it takes a little bit of time to figure out who's doing what and what's happening. So you have to agree to operate separately in many ways, you know, for some period of time until you can start to determine we're going to take this from this company, this from that company, this from the other company. And that is a very complicated, complex set of activities that is taking away from the day to day business. But it can mm -hmm. very often be the way to go because you're trying to gain the best from that company that you acquired. And the third is mm -hmm. kind of a hybrid. We bought you for these things. We want to take this piece of the company that we acquired and use that to infuse both culture and process and product mentality. And a lot of that is kind of cultural, if you will, in some ways, the how you went about doing things. Um, and that causes a different set of uh, friction because the people who think that they've been there all along and know what they're doing are now being told by the new guys um, that, you know, what they've been doing isn't what's going to happen going forward. So all of those require a strong uh, concerning uh, tone from the top that says, this is the direction we're going in. Here's how we're going to do that. And, you know, these are the decisions that have been made. This is why those decisions have been made. We want you to come along with us, but these are the shifts we need you to make to be able to move forward with us. Do you find that the leadership of both companies really need to spend time beforehand, before the deal closes to make it a successful combination or, you know, you mentioned you, the, the thing that, that brought that to mind was you mentioned some sellers just want to get their check and leave. And, and, and I've, I've been involved in many of those transactions and it, it sort of leaves everybody else in the wilderness, if you will. What, what, what is the best practice for integrating two companies, uh, in your opinion? I think, I think there is frequently, you know, a, and, and it goes back and forth kind of cyclically, whether it's a best practice or if it's a what typically happens in the market, but that, you know, the, the most senior leaders or the owners of the company or the founder of the company moves out um, upon, you know, close. 
or stays in a different role and is no longer in that leadership role, both because mm-hmm. of the financial conflicts in some ways um, and because of the changes that are going to be required um, to be successful in this next state. Um, so that's pretty standard um, and, it, and it can look different uh, and the timing can look different. Um, but I think the big thing is how then at that next level and that early decision on the buyer to know at what level, who do you need to keep in the short term? Who do you need to keep in the long term, given the structure, given the capability? And that's why it is important um, for the buyer to have a good understanding of the talent. And, you know, we see in many markets, you know, people are buying organizations that they've had some dealings with either as a partner, as a supplier, as a teammate, um, you know, somebody who, or a competitor. So they know some of these players and they have some idea, maybe not through due diligence, but through other, you know, ways that they've gotten to know people. Um, and that's really important. I, you know, horror story, you know, was working with a, an organization that, you know, had a very, very fast, um, time to letter of intent, a time, that, you know, they've been thinking about it. They've been looking at the organization. They knew some pieces of it, but didn't know, you know, everything about, you know, the, the, the team and had a super, super compressed time. And then when it came time to actually say, okay, we're on day one, here's where we're going. Um, a lot of assumptions had been made um, in some of those conversations about who was going to stay, what roles were going to happen. They hadn't been fully articulated. Um, and I think some decisions, decisions were made in certain small rooms, um, but the communication wasn't clear. And it created some friction and some discontent um, and, quite frankly, c- delayed the alignment of, of the integration. And quite frankly, you know, in the long run, you know, didn't have an immediate impact on the acquisition thesis coming to fruition, but it did in the long run because um, people didn't get started fast enough. So things didn't happen at the pace and cadence they were expecting. So planning ahead is always important is the bottom line. Bottom, yes. What's the biggest challenge that sellers and buyers face post-closing, in your opinion? Um, Getting started. Because they've just put all this energy into doing the deal and getting it closed and all the diligence and everything. And everybody's worked hard to get exhausted. So they're exhausted. So So (laughs) now we have to start over again. Right. Yeah, I get that. That's a good, that's a good answer. And And how can a seller, I'm sorry, go ahead. And the other piece of that is communication, right? Because, and I think this is where, and it doesn't matter what kind of change an organization is going through. The people Mm -hmm. who are involved in most cases have been thinking about this, have been working on something, you know, either in the early planning stages, the exploration stages, you know, two years, 18 months, a year, the rest of the company has no idea. So, you know, three months before the close, the rest of the world gets read in and told this is what's going to happen. Everybody else has been, the other people have been involved in it. They think they've said it because they've said it a hundred times in a, in a closet, um, <laughs> you know, or, you know, in, in, a, in a locked room. And right, um, right. so they come out and they're like, okay, this is going to be great. You know, the three, you know, positive words that come out on the, the day of the close, we're all going to go forward and be a happy family. And it's not really clear what that means. Right. So having clear communication, ongoing communication and really strong decision points um, and that plan that says these are the things that you're going to expect to see when the changes are going to happen. 
And we may be wrong, but this is what we're directionally going towards is critical. Yeah, that's getting a lot better in larger organizations, but in smaller organizations, you know, there's still less thinking about how are we aligning all of those things and shaping them so people understand the disruptions that are happening to the organization. The, the best deals that I've seen happen where the, the acquisition is successful is exactly what you described. So there's communication, not only internally on both sides, but between the, you know, if, if the buyer comes in and has a good communication with the seller early on as to how things are going to work and not trying to rush uh, things through and, and making assumptions without having done enough digging and diligence and communication, it can be very, very uh, devastating uh, to both sides when they, it's like, it's like, you, you know, you, you went out on a date with somebody one date and you said, let's get married. You get married and then all right. of a sudden you find out, oh, well, maybe this isn't the person for me. Um, I but, used that um, same analogy the other day. It's a lot like digging. And, and what are you doing? You know, are you just going to put on some lipstick? Um, or are you going to go to the gym for three months beforehand? Right. You know, what are you doing? Especially on the seller side, right? What are, how, are, sure. how are you preparing, you know, for that, for that exit? Do you all help the sellers get ready for the exit? We do. Is we work in a couple of different ways to do that. Um, some of it is very um, tactical in terms of, you know, making sure that they're ready from a reporting perspective, um, looking at the mm -hmm. numbers and helping them, you know, make sure that, you know, their processes are, you know, are, are more standard, that they've got um, easy ways to prepare for the due diligence and certainly are, you know, you know, not my team, but the, you know, my, my very close colleagues, you know, in the transaction um, advisory services do a lot of due diligence and we support some of that on the, the financial um, analysis side. But we do help um, kind of think through uh, with the, with the sellers, you know, what is it you're trying to accomplish? Um, and how do you make yourself more attractive? You know, again, that has to happen up front. Um, yes. and less on, you know, and we can certainly do that from an operational perspective, but we really look at it from a financial model perspective. Helping them build the processes and filling the value gaps that right. currently exist so that they can sell successfully. Exactly. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Kim. We've been talking with Kim Clark Paxtis of Cone Resnick. And, you know, if you want to know more about what she does and how she does it, how can they get in touch with you, Kim? So the best way is probably going to our website and it's uh, or, um, on conresnick.com. And um, that would be great. Um, you can find me out there. You can find me at kim.clarkpaxtis at conresnick.com. You can also find me on LinkedIn. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks for being a special guest on Blueprint for Wealth, too. Thank you, Wayne. This has been fun. All right. And stay tuned for an educational moment right after this. Today's special educational program is focused on phantom stock plans. So all of you entrepreneurs and business owners out there, listen carefully. Here we go. What's a phantom stock plan? And what is phantom stock? And how does it work? Well, it's basically a form of employee benefit that is referred to as deferred compensation. It's typically referred to as a non-qualified deferred compensation plan. In a phantom stock plan, selected employees, key employees, receive the benefits of stock ownership without actually receiving ownership of the stock. But it's worth money 
just like real stock. So it has value. And the value rises and falls with the company's actual stock. Or whatever the company is valued at if it's a privately held company and not a publicly traded company. In the end, the employees are paid out of the profits after some predetermined event or time. Phantom stock has lots of benefits to those who participate. The managers and key employees get to act like managers because they're incentivized to stay with the company. This is a long-term incentive, so it instills loyalty in the managers and key employees. It gives them a head start on their business succession planning, and it's not a qualified plan. Qualified plans are governed by ERISA, the Employee Retirement Income Security Act. And by virtue of being covered by ERISA, there are many reporting and filing requirements. Phantom stock plans don't have those requirements, but they also lack the income tax advantages of qualified plans. For example, an employer who sponsors a qualified plan gets a deduction for payments into the plan but the employee doesn't have to recognize income until they actually withdraw the benefits from a trust that holds the plan contributions. There are no formal valuations or audits that are required for phantom stock plans, unlike qualified plans. And most importantly, phantom stock plans are designed to cover key employees and managers. Therefore, they're not allowed to cover the rank and file or the entire population of the company. So the non-discrimination rules that do apply to qualified plans don't apply to phantom stock plans. There's no funding required of phantom stock plans like in qualified plans. In fact, you're not allowed to fund phantom stock plans. Phantom stock plans have the following characteristics. First, it's a binding contract between the company and the employees to pay out these benefits if the employee satisfies the requirements of the contract. Terms and conditions, however, vary from plan to plan. And the, these types of plans typically require financial statement disclosure and may require recognition of compensation expense, meaning that it will reduce the net income of the company by the value of the plan benefits being accrued. By contrast, in the tax context, a, a phantom stock plan does not generate a deduction until the actual payment is made. So there are big timing differences for tax and financial reporting purposes. In phantom stock plans, you have different participation rights. The, the participant might participate in the entire value of the equity allocated to the phantom stock. They only might participate in the appreciation above a certain level after they join the company, or they can participate in income and profits. And some plans provide for hybrids of all of these benefits. Who gets to participate in a phantom stock plan and how do they participate? Well, key employees and managers are really the only ones supposed to participate in a phantom stock plan. This allows the plan to qualify for a special exemption under the Department of Labor rules called the top hat exemption. 
A letter has to be filed within 120 days of implementing the plan with the Department of Labor, and it's a very simple filing, unlike what's required in a qualified plan. Units are awarded either based on past service, based on the position of the individual with the company, usually a high-ranking individual or a key employee who's very important to the success of the company, or based on performance. How did they do? Did they earn the benefit under the plan? Then they can be awarded the benefit under the plan. Vesting is also an important component. You hear about vesting both in terms of qualified plans and in stock option plans. Well, they might be time-based vesting. So if an employee has three-year vesting, they may be able to vest in one-third of the phantom units every year for three years. There could also be cliff vesting after a period of time. Some plans allow for the individual who receives the benefit to vest immediately upon award, and others yet require performance metrics to be met before a phantom unit can be awarded or vested. In a change of control situation, there may actually be a payout and investing could be accelerated on a change in control. Some key issues to consider that usually arise in structuring phantom stock plans, what are the triggering events that either cause the individual to forfeit the plan benefits or receive the plan payments? Let's say somebody's terminated from employment with cause, which is defined in the plan. They've done something really, really bad, and therefore they may be required to forfeit their rights to the benefits under the plan entirely. What happens if the individual is terminated without cause, as it's defined in the plan? Or they leave with good reason? In some cases, they may still might be required to forfeit the benefit. In others, they could be allowed to keep the benefit of the phantom units. Yet, if they're terminated without cause, I've seen plans and I've written plans that have varying incentives depending on what the situation is. So if they're terminated without cause, they may still get a reduced payment based on net book value or some other metric that's less than the real fair market value of the shares, or they may be allowed to hold on to their units and cash out and get full fair market value when the company is sold. Plans need to consider when somebody resigns. Again, they may forfeit their rights, they may keep their rights, they may get a reduced payout equal to net book value, or they may get full fair market value. It really depends on the employer. If there's a sale of the company, many plans provide for the acceleration of vesting on the sale of the company, even though the individual may have just received the plan benefits, the phantom unit benefits. And they should usually participate in a pro rata share of the net proceeds received by the shareholders in the company on the sale of the company. Phantom plans also build in provisions to deal with the death of a plan participant, disability, and retirement. Payouts occur and are structured in different ways under different plans. So you might see plans that pay out over several years, and it's stated in the plan that, say, upon retirement from employment, you might receive a payout of your phantom unit benefits over five or ten years. In other cases, the plans may be modified to allow for acceleration of benefits or other events. 
But in all cases, these plans must comply with the rigorous requirements of Internal Revenue Code Section 409A and its regulations under that code section. Those regulations in that section are very difficult to comply with, so make sure you're consulting with a qualified tax professional who understands those rules. And again, if there's a change in control, there may be a payout either upon the change in control of the company, the sale, merger, acquisition of the company, or within a certain period of time after that. Here are the reasons to use Phantom stock. They're uncomplicated. Phantom units are only paid out if the employee meets certain terms under the Phantom unit award agreement or the plan. And I use the term units and shares, they're equivalent. It really depends on how you define them under the plan. Phantom unit holders don't have voting rights like shareholders. So they can't block the company from taking certain actions like shareholders might be able to. And importantly, shareholders who have the right to receive an information about the company and inspect the books and records, that rule does not apply to phantom unit holders. They have no such rights. Yet they remain invested in the success of the company because they can participate either in the profits or the upside of the value of the company as it grows. Phantom units are less, less expensive to uh, offer, and phantom unit plans, phantom stock plans, are much less expensive to implement than, say, employee stock ownership plans, ESOPs. And they offer more flexibility. Privately held companies use them. Publicly traded companies use them. Small companies use them. Large companies use them. And it really doesn't matter what type of entity you are. You can be an LLC, a limited liability company, an S-Corp or a C-Corp, and you can have a phantom unit plan. Most importantly, taxes are not imposed on the recipient generally until they receive a payout under the plan. If you want more information on how to implement and draft and structure a phantom unit plan, give us a call at 571-203-9355 or visit us on the web at Zell Law. Thank you.